Let's drop the green flag on this episode of the Talent Tank Podcast with your host, Wyatt Pemberton, bringing you the best, fastest, most knowledgeable personalities in Ultra 4 and off-road racing. Hey, it's Wyatt. Yes, asking for your help. If you like the show and enjoy the content, please hit the five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or on Stitcher. Please consider writing a quick review on the Talent Tank Facebook page, on YouTube, and absolutely on Apple Podcasts. And consider joining the discussions in the Talent Tank Insiders group on Facebook. All right, let's get to it. Welcome back to the Talent Tank. Thank you for tuning in today. We've got another great episode here, another great installment. We have, as you already know, Shannon Welch, the former queen of Hammer King. I've got her here on video and she's like shaking her head like, that's not yeah, what I was. No, no. Shannon, thank you for gracing us with today's interview. Thanks for coming on. Happy to, happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. There's a huge power vacuum. There's a huge knowledge vacuum in Ultra 4 and at Hammer King with your departure. You spent eight years behind the scenes, dotting the I's, crossing the T's for us. And we immediately cried when you left in December. And then here we are, you know, we get to, we get to February King of the Hammers 2019. And all of a sudden we realized all the things that Shannon did. You know, yes, there was a lot that I definitely did. There's a a much bigger team than when I started, though. So the the good news is, is that the the ship is too big to uh, tip over without one person there these days. So I'm I'm glad to see that that's the case. That's for sure. Oh, yeah. The show must go on. And it it, it did. But it did. You know, there were there were certainly hiccups and speed bumps and hitches that previously you had insured and you ran in front of the train and moved and repaved and put out new track and diverted track and threw other trains off the track. Uh, you were very much a, a champion for making sure things worked and went smooth as can be for uh, all the race events uh, that Ultra Fours ran for the past you know eight years. And then here we are in 2019. We are Sans Shannon, but we're going to have a discussion with you because you are up to some really cool stuff. You have a kind of a deal going with uh, your your Ask Shannon uh, question deal. Yeah. You're also a huge media uh, and social media guru. You know all the inner workings in the back circle and how things work behind the scenes. You know, that's why I've got you on. We're going to talk about that. Uh, sure. Like I said, I want to talk about what you've been doing since you left Ultra 4. We miss you. And I know there's a lot of people that want to hear what you've been up to. Sure. And we will get there. But in the meantime, Tell me what you've been up to uh, this past weekend, because we've been trying to schedule this for a few weeks. It's not like, hey, we're going to do this tomorrow and we do it tomorrow. But this weekend, I had some time and you didn't and you were involved in a Jeep event. So there were a few different things that kind of popped up. But hey, Shannon, quick question. It was just kind of the page that I put together because people were asking, what are you doing? That was always the ongoing joke at Ultra 4 that I was convinced my name was Hey Shannon Quick Question because I would get that all the time. You know, that would be literally what I'd hear every time I'd say this is Shannon. Hey Shannon, quick question. That just seemed to be a a logical name for what I was doing next. What I've been doing is is really kind of figuring out, I guess, what I want to be when I grow up. I'm still working on that. 
but social media is definitely a part of it. Event coordination is part of it. This past weekend, I uh, helped put on the fifth annual uh, Jeep Bash here in Southern California. It's 500 Jeeps, 45 vendors, pretty cool turnout. Uh, definitely doubled the space that we had over the year before, and it was a lot of fun. Not quite the desert, but it's kind of cool to be with off-roaders at the beach too, though. So that was fun for sure. We'll get in this because I know you are a Jeep girl. You're like the the Jeep girl. We will get there and how, how we get there. It's a good story. It's a great story. Yeah, so no, it's a as people notice and that have been around you, we know you're, you're SoCal, SoCal, you're LA girl, but your accent is totally not LA girl. So it's too nasally to be that part of the world. You very, you sound East coast. Where at? I grew up in Rochester, New York, um, but nobody from Rochester thought I thinks I sound like I'm from there. Thought I sound like I was from there. Uh, but yeah, no, I grew up in Rochester. Uh, still struggle with calling myself a California girl. So it's funny that you do. Born and raised there. Uh, moved to California when I graduated college and been out here ever since. Yeah. So that's, I mean, well, that's quite a leap to go from the East Coast to the West Coast and you skipped over all this beautiful country in the middle. The flyover states. No, no, I got to see that the last eight years with Ultra 4, for sure. I got to see, I got to see some quite the small towns along the way. Ultra 4 has the ability to pick out the smallest of the smallest towns and the most hard to get to of the smallest towns. And that is where we're going to put on an event. Oh, yeah. Well, it's great. You know, people are like, oh, you travel for a living? Where do you go? Uh, have you been to Davis, Oklahoma? Have you been to Attica, Indiana? And they're like, no. I'm like, yeah, no. <laughs> no big surprise. You haven't been there. But these are the glamorous places that I go. Yeah. It, honestly, I enjoy it, though. I really loved getting to see s these small towns. I've learned that I don't enjoy being in big cities. I'd much rather spend my time at the local diner in some small town getting to hear the local stories than, you know, major city touring, if you will. So oh, I think that's the adventurer in you, and that's certainly the jeeper in you. So growing up in Rochester, were you, uh, you know, heavily involved in any sports or theatrics or debate? Yeah, oh, all of that, all of that. Um, the only thing I wasn't involved with was cars. Um, but the rest of it, I, yeah, I was captain of the field hockey team, president of the UN club, you know, editor of the school newspaper, voted most opinionated, uh, Sunday school still are, teacher. Still are. I might have a few opinions on some things. Maybe, maybe, maybe. But yeah, no, I was, the, I was the oldest kid growing up in our house and just went for everything all the time. And that continued through high school, got me to Ithaca College, went to school there, uh, went to school for communication in particular, got to really focus my studies. Um, they put me in this honor program program where basically I kind of got to choose my major. Um, so I got to pick all of the coolest classes within the communication school and really focused on technology and media and where it was going and spent a lot of time like social media is coming, social media is coming. And like I was, I was that girl in college. And then it took like, I don't know, another 10 years for social media to actually show up. But it's, but it's here and here we are, we're having a conversation. You were in California. I'm in Southern, Southern Texas. And, uh, we can look at each other. I'm watching you on video. and uh... Well, the crazy thing is, is I was doing this in 1996. I'm not even kidding you. Living on a camera in 1996, just like this. For 24 hours a day. So I had you're a camera telling me that technology hasn't moved in 20 years on this. That's terrible. It's terrible. It just took that long for people to embrace it is really what it took. Truly. I was doing this in 1996 at the age of 18. No joke. 
I'll say like five years ago, I had a friend that uh, liked to travel with me for off-road stuff. And he uh, he had, was trying to convince me that podcasts were where it was at. And I told him he was crazy and to stop trying to sell me that hippie crap. Here we are. And here we are. I have one of these, right? And he uh, he called me a couple days ago. This is just a couple days ago and says, dude, I told you. I was like, I still don't know what's going on, man. That's kind of like me telling somebody that race cars are dumb and that king of the hammers thing don't go do that yeah yeah and then and then where did my life go you touched on that you were the oldest uh child how many uh siblings do you have oh it depends on how you do the math and what kind of family tree we're putting together on that i've got two biological sisters i grew up in a house with eight kids i definitely have some more step kids uh, uh, step siblings beyond that too i was the oldest of six while i lived in the house but there were a couple older than me and like i say there's some steps here and there but my two biological sisters they've been with me through everything yeah so that sounds like that may be like your steps into being able to work in controlled chaos I've definitely been doing it my entire life. That is true. Yes. I was responsible for everybody and took the blame for everything. Yes. I feel like you might've missed your calling as like a, like a combat correspondent or something along those lines. Like, I think that is much more fitting. When you graduate high school though, you, I heard you say Ithaca college. That's mm-hmm. uh, that's a, that's smaller than uh, most high schools, right? It's not a very big university. It's not, um, but they are known for their communication school, which is why I picked them. And it was a, it was a great experience, truly. So, I mean, college isn't for everybody, but for me, being from a small town, blue collar small town, um, it definitely showed me a different way of life. If that makes sense, so it definitely helped with that for sure. Yeah, I agree. College isn't for everybody, and this, yeah, I guess this perpetuated deal about that should be the next step. That's the natural progression. And I totally subscribe into Mike Rowe's philosophy on this, that it's not Love him. college isn't for everyone. And he, he does have some amazing messages out there. He has an amazing foundation as well. That Getting to work with him on that foundation is on my bucket list. So, you know, if he happens to ever hear this, if give me a call. I would love to work with Mike Rowe. It has been on my bucket list for a very long time, for sure. You're in the right town. His office is right there in L.A. He's got an office out there by the studios. Really? Yes, he is right there in L.A. You should reach out across his foundation website and reach out to him. I don't think he turns down people, especially I'm, this is me pushing you right off the bat. Like, um, and everyone else that's listening, Go. we're speaking about Mike Rowe, the dirty jobs guy. And I don't know how we got off this tangent early, but I do love tangents. I was at a, uh, a uh, conference in downtown Houston a few months ago and a welder, a certified welder that works on the Houston ship channel. You know, it's the equivalent of Port of LA, you know, uh, Long Beach uh, with, with the docks. And he stood up and he said, you know, we have a problem with welders. You know, the average age of a welder on the ship channel is, I thought he said 52 from point where I was sitting. Mm-hmm. And the, the average pay is, it's six figures. He says, and we can't recruit, we are unable to recruit new people. And it's because this, there's this stigma that college is that natural next progression. Like that's the step. And it, that shouldn't necessarily be the step because one, there's there's debt with that, and then there's you're training for jobs that don't exist. Yep. Go out and get a, go out and get a skill. You can start you know l- learn a trade. The world does not get built without welders. No, it look just look around the room you're sitting in, the chair you're sitting on, your desk, everything around you is welded uh, that is metal. This guy says to Micro, "Is there any way you could help?" And he looks at the guy and says, "You know what? In this room with four or five of hundred of my best friends, we have a full studio here. I have my mic." We've got cameras. Let's shoot a 30-second spot right now. 
And he just rolled into it with a, yep. listen, in the U.S., if you want to be a welder, if you want to make six figures, go to welding school. It's unreal. Micro is so much more eloquent with it. And he rolled it out and said, look up this, this, this. And in the meantime, also hit my foundation. My foundation is micro, whatever. Micro works. Mm-hmm. Micro works. There you go. I think that's the full story is that there is so much. And we've seen it. You know, you and I have had conversations about this, that it's interesting, the guys that are in Ultra 4. And oh my gosh, I know I'm just jumping like way ahead because we have to come back because this is no, the Shannon show. People are people sign in and clicked on this to listen to the Shannon show, not the Wyatt talking about not going to college show um, uh, that you should go, go learn a trade. No, but it's important. But guys in Ultra 4, it's very interesting. The conversations that you and I have had about where where they have came from, uh, are they mechanics? Are they own their own business? Did they go to college? Did they not go to college? Are they blue collar, white collar? Yeah. And the dim, the makeup of that. And I think you have a, a project that you're mulling over that I'm going to stand behind you and be like, Shannon, you do that project because I think that project is something that I want to read. And I think a lot of other people want to read, but I digress. Wait, we're getting way off topic with that. Yeah, no, but I have been fascinated for a long time with the concept of who should, not who should go to college, but the whole idea behind being able to create things. And there's this whole thing between creators and consumers and society. And I really, when I graduated college and I moved to California, I worked in corporate America for a good 10, 12 years. I made good money. I enjoyed that part of it, but, but I never felt as alive as I did when I bought my Jeep and I got to go out and do off-road. As social media was emerging, there was this ability for me to, you know, tell the world about what Jeepers were doing and then tell the world what off-roaders were doing and then specifically Ultra 4, what they were doing. And what amazed me was people needed to understand that there were these, these pioneers that were out there creating things, that were spending their spare time in their garages on the weekends, building this stuff because they just cared about it and they wanted to build and try new things and experiment. That pioneering spirit is still alive in things like Ultra for. And that's really what drove me to it. And really what has really made me passionate for like this last decade is focusing more on creators than consumers. Because I think that you can go through life. What I mean by that is you can go through life buying the coolest new thing and pushing paper around, but I don't think you feel a sense of purpose at the end of the day. And, you know, and looking at why King of the Hammers grew the way it did, particularly through a recession, let's be honest, people want to build, they want to create things, they want to challenge themselves. And I love being around people who do that. And that was really what Ultra 4 was to me. So. And there's 98% of the population love to go out there and watch that 2% create. Correct. I think I've given you that quote a few times when I've been encouraging you with it. I use it. I own it. Yep. No, 5% of the population creates what 95% of the population consumes. I want to stay in that 5%. I encourage everybody who can to stay in that 5% for sure. Oh, they're inspiring. Hey, I mean, look at this. This was creationism here and doing so, you know, I was on the other side. Yeah, I was on the side of building the race cars, working on the race cars, doing the racing. And it's just something that I can't do physically. And there's a multitude of reasons. I found out I'm a type two diabetic and my vision is not the best. 
about half the day. So that's not always the best guy that you want to get in, in, in the car and go 130 with like I used to. I don't know. Shannon did that for a while until he finally got LASIK. He wasn't seeing real good there for a while. He started winning again when he got LASIK. Sorry, Shannon Campbell. That is three-time king of the hammers when we were talking about. That's absolutely right. And so I know I've been on, you know, course going, you know, exactly going 100 plus and being able to see perfectly. And then I've also done it and not being able to see Jack because I had six too many beers the night before and my blood sugar was way off. Um, this is the next best thing. So we're creating in a different fashion. You were standing behind me telling me how certain things, how to do it and pushing me to do it. She's like, you know, why you need to do this. You need to do this. And I'm still gratefully thankful for uh, all your advice, the late night text sessions, the calls, the stories, the discussions about people bouncing ideas off people. Cause there's only so many people that are already kind of in the know or kind of behind the curtain. Um, you're behind the curtain for eight years with ultra four. So you make a really good sounding board for me. I appreciate that. I love that anybody's anybody who's out there wanting to tell the stories of these guys. They're still my heroes. They're still my friends. They're still my family. That doesn't change just because uh, my title changes. So telling their stories, they haven't stopped being amazing individuals. And people people outside of you know the official organization need to care and need to tell their stories. So I think this is an exciting next step in that for sure. Well, in the meantime, we're going to tell your story. You moved to California, and this is before you had a Jeep. I know you oh, yeah. were a biker chick. You had a yeah, you had a dual sport motorcycle, and you ripped it on the weekends. Like, No, truthfully, I never ripped it on the weekends. That's the reason that I wasn't very... I was as straight-laced and square as they came. I still am in some regards. I did not off-road. I did not do anything automotive-related at all. In fact, my girlfriends in college still laugh because when we would talk about the type of guy we were interested in, I said, as long as he's not a gearhead, I'm good. That's the only thing I don't want to be around. So I grew up, my dad was a mechanic. My uncle was a mechanic. They both were involved with raising me. But it's very different when you have to do it for a living, especially in a place as bitter cold as Rochester, New York is most of the year. I just didn't want to be around guys who spent their entire lives with their heads in, in motors. And then something happened. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, yeah, no, I wasn't into anything like that at all. Then I became best friends with this guy that uh, had a dual sport. I actually owned a house at the bottom of a mountain range here. And he's like, you know, have you ever been to the top of it? And I'm like, you can do that I'm from the East Coast. So we're not used to public land. We're not used to you can you can actually go and explore the wilderness. If you didn't own it or you didn't know who owned it, you didn't get to go do that where I grew up. And so, yeah, he asked me if I wanted to ride on the back of it. We ran into some Jeeps on the way up there. I said I always wanted one of those. I think I gave him the initial bug to get a Jeep. And he, in turn, gave me the bug to get a dual sport. I thought, all right, well, I'm not very good at being a passenger on things. So I got my, I took my motorcycle safety class, got my motorcycle and I sucked at riding a motorcycle. I didn't suck, suck. No, I wasn't good. I realized that it wasn't for me when like 10 year olds were blown by me all the time on the trails. And I'm like, yeah, I just have too much risk aversion for this. So at a young age came the cage got into the Jeep side of things and the rest is history. Really? I have a quick story about myself at King of the Hammers on a motorcycle. Yeah. We had little pit bikes and you know, the pit bikes, you know, you run from pit to pit. Oh yeah. We had drank way too many beers. That no. Year, that, yes, this is true. And it was, and it was, a, and I can't tell you what year this was. You know, they all run together. But we are all car hearted up, you know, the car hearts, sure. the bib overalls and the, because we are, it's cold, but we're going to ride our pit bikes from Hammertown to Backdoor because we didn't want to get pulled over mm. in a vehicle because mm -hmm. it was not the right thing. 
and we didn't have like a backpack cooler. I think this maybe predates those, but we'd shoved beers into all of our Carhartt pockets. So I think I had like a, Every. like an mm-hmm. eight pack on me and we're bombing up, you know, we leave out of Hammertown, headed North, headed up towards the wash. And then you, you make the left-hand turn to head towards a uh, back door. That first wash that you, there's that step down in, you know, it's, it's like sure. know, 10 foot step down with yep. really soft, soft sand at the bottom. Everyone in front of me hops down and I hop down and my wheel hits the soft sand at the bottom and, and it goes left and I went right. And all of those beers in my car hearts exploded right. as I smashed into whatever I smashed into. I stand up. And I look like that kid from like Happy Gilmore. No, no, it's Billy Madison where he's like, you're not cool unless you pee your pants. <laughs> this beer from like my nipples to my knees, just, just soaked all the way through. Whoever was behind me just rolls up and just like, Hey man, I got enough for it. We got enough. We got enough. Let's just go. And I went up there and we, fr- I froze at back door. I drink beer, but I froze because uh, I suck at writing materials too. So I sympathize yeah. with. Yeah. No, what is like, I, I enjoyed the dual sport. I loved the ability to take it from, uh, you know, the road to the dirt. That was awesome. But it's also awesome in my Jeep, which had protection. I mean, we did a hypothermia run one day. That's what I called it. We were out in the desert and it was amazing. The weather was beautiful. And then all of a sudden it turned and we had a 40 mile ride to anywhere in the middle of like just this downpour. And I'm wearing mesh. And I thought I have never been so cold in the Southern California desert. I'm more cold in the Southern California desert than I ever was in Rochester, New York growing up. And there's something incredibly wrong with this. So I liked a little bit more creature comfort, bought my Jeep Rubicon in 2006 and went from there on the Jeeping side of things for sure. So. And you still have that Jeep, correct? Oh yeah. Little Red. She's still in the garage. She's still my daily driver, truthfully. <laughs> I actually, for two years, <laughs> I had a terrible nickname. Um, for two years, I got involved with people who were involved in adopted trail stuff in Southern California. Cause when I was doing the dual sport stuff, you know, I'd be out on the trails. And I'm like, God, we really need to rebuild this trail or we really need to clean up this trail. Somebody has got to be doing that out there. That overachiever in me found my way into that group. And so I got involved with rebuilding trails before I even owned a Jeep. So I got to know this really great group of Jeepers that we hung out uh, I would just show up on a Saturday and be like hey if anybody's got a right seat I'm willing to like you know move boulders and and, <laughs> and clean up trash if you guys will have me today just because I loved being out in the wilderness and and really getting to work side by side with people physical labor and outdoors and that sort of thing just I, I worked in a corporate office all week long all I wanted to do was be outdoors on the weekend so um, that was me reverting back to embracing my blue collar childhood and wanting to go back to it a little bit after probably spending a decade not doing anything creative or functional or, or really having to work. I paid people to do stuff. Um, and that's what I did. So, so it was, it was awesome. I uh, got to know a lot of good Jeepers that way. They gave me a terrible nickname, which was hilarious. I owned it back then because they go like, oh, whose wife is that? Or whose girlfriend is that? And like, oh, <laughs> that's the Jeep whore. If you've got a right seat, she'll ride along with you. I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's clarify that. I'm interested in your Jeep, not anything else going on in your Jeep. But like, yeah, we know. We get it. It's just a Jeep thing. So I got to wheel with a lot of really amazing people over that period of time. Got to learn a lot about wheeling. Then one day I decided I'm tired of being the one taking the pictures and spotting and moving rocks. I I want my own Jeep. And so I did Uh, as a single female at the age of, I don't know, early 30s. Went out and bought my first Jeep, uh, Rubicon. Thanks to my lovely Jeeping friends, they nominated me for... (laughs) 
this stupid reality show <laughs> that wanted to be about uh, jeeping called On the Rocks TV. I wanted no part of it. My friends thought it would be hilarious to send in like a blooper reel of me doing dumb stuff. And they did. I'm at a trade show for my day job, which was I was a headhunter working with international law firms for years. And I get this phone call of, hey, we have this audition tape for you, but you never submitted uh, an application form for the show. And I said, oh, there's a reason for that. I have no interest in being on your show. <laughs> and <he> said, <laughs> And they're like, oh, well, we could really use you. And I'm like, yeah, my Jeep's a month old. I don't think I've made a payment on it yet. I don't want to be on a reality show. And they're like, well, we really, really, really want a female, somebody who is wheeling. That's that's a woman wheeling on her own. And I said, yeah, I'm still not interested. And then they called me back like four more times that same weekend. And they're like, would you really consider this? I said, only if you put me in a group with my group of friends who are also auditioning. Because really, I, I hadn't actually taken it out into rocks. It didn't have... It didn't have skid plates. It didn't have, I mean, it was bone stock. There wasn't one thing on this Jeep. And they said, yeah, 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 we'll agree to all of that. Well, as is the case with anything television related, none of that, <laughs> none of that actually happened. I show up for the audition in Big Bear and it's, <laughs> it's me on 31 inch tires in my stock Rubicon in a group of 40 inch tires, you know, five and a half inch lift like just these tricked out Jeeps. And what I didn't realize was, is I was actually meeting most of the people that I would come to interact with for the last decade, but I didn't know. And here I was this like girl that nobody had heard of before. They were accusing me of being a ringer. Oh, she's actually an actress. She's not really a Jeeper. They just want the girl on the show kind of thing and beat the crap out of my Jeep. <laughs> beat the crap out of my Jeep. I made it into the pilot episode of the show. It aired on the outdoor channel for a season, I want to say. Um, and yeah, that was kind of the beginning of the craziness that, that has become the off-road world going from being my hobby to being much more than that and being my whole life. And somewhere in there, you got involved with a racer named Kevin Sakalis. Yes. Mr. Sakalis. Uh, yeah, actually I did in all of that. I, that same group of friends, the ones that nominated me to audition for that uh, TV show, it, they were a cool group of, of people. They became, every weekend we were wheeling somewhere together. And there was this kid, cocky kid, but smart and talented, a few years younger than me. And he started showing up and he would always do the dumbest things with his rigs. He was always at the front of the line with everything we were doing and and my Jeep was a baby Jeep and he didn't care what he did to his Jeep. So I'd usually, if it was a gnarly trail, like if you're going to the hammers or something, I jump in with him and I'd wheel with him all the time. We did that for, oh gosh, uh, right. Well, till 2000, 2006, I bought it. So till 2009, you know, we'd work on everything at his shop because he had all of the tools and everything. And he was awesome. The one thing is, as a solo female in the wheeling world, I had, I had a quick uh, learning curve because People were cool to invite you, but you have to be able to do stuff. You have to be able to fix your axle. You know, if you if you snap an axle, you have to know how to do that. You have to have the parts with you. You have to have the tools with you. Otherwise, you're just somebody else's liability, and you don't get really invited on the long trips. So I learned to do all of that, which was not a natural thing for me, but did. Kevin was definitely a part of all of that. He was awesome with that stuff. I started showing up at his shop, and there's parts that definitely don't look like they fit on a Jeep starting to randomly show up around his shop. And I'm like, what's that crap? What are you doing with that? What's going on there? And he's like, I'm thinking about doing something. Uh, really our first fight, we were best, best friends. Our first fight was when he told me he was going to build a buggy. And I thought, you're going to ruin everything. We've got the best time wheeling every weekend. And you're going to build one of those stupid race cars. That's going to take all your time. 
and then done. Turns out. No, that was really what happened. So so Kevin Sakalis, he built himself the biggest, ugliest car you've ever seen. And I was a total brat of a friend. So I would go wheeling every weekend and show up at his place Sunday afternoon and be like, I broke this, I broke this. Can you help me weld this back on? And, and I'd be like, this is where we went. This is what we did. Look at the pictures. Oh, that's right. You're stuck here working on your stupid car. I was not a good friend. And then one day I realized he was actually going to get that motor to turn over. I'm like, holy, holy crap. He actually, he's, he's 20, like 25, 26 at this point. Holy crap. I think he actually built a car. Like, like not like there wasn't a, like he designed the chassis, everything. And I'm like, holy crap, he's going to do this. And I'm like, so what do you got to do now to get into this race? Because in all fairness, he'd actually tried to qualify. So I'd actually gone out to King of the Hammers from 2008. I'd been there since 2008. Uh, 2008, I showed up after the race and I wondered why the hell there were so many people on the lake bed because um, I came from work because we would be there, out there all the time and there was nobody. And then 2009, he actually took his TJ on 40-inch tires and missed by one spot qualifying in the LCQ. So then that's when he became hellbent on he had to build one of these buggy things. And so he did. I sh- I'm like, so seriously, so like this is like another LCQ kind of thing you and he's like yeah something like that he offered all of our wheeling friends this <laughs> hey i've got free rooms in vegas if you'll come to vegas for the weekend and help me with this race and everybody's like sure we're in free rooms in vegas uh what we didn't know was it was a three-day thousand mile race through the nevada desert in august which was vegas Torino, the long way that year and it was it, it was three days of racing and we yep. i was there on that one and we bivouacked each night uh, along the way tono was it tonopa one night and hawthorne the next night there was absolutely and that changed my whole life that weekend literally changed my life so well leading up to it so so what i did then was is i took our whole group of friends right and i took the guys that were good mechanics i'm like well they can't all be together because we need one in every pit because it was this leapfrog thing to actually do the race so i took them and i put them in different in different groups and i made three groups of people and then i put oh this is the this is the race logistics and you realized we do not have any clue what we are doing. Oh no, no clue. And None so, of us And no one's and no one's taking charge of this. So no. Shannon's like, you know what? My OCD is big. No, let me tell you exactly how it went down. Kevin goes, uh, yeah, I I haven't had. I've been so busy building this car. I haven't really looked at everything that's involved with it. I'm not even sure I'm registered yet. Will you go take a look at it? So I go into the office of his shop, right, and I pull it up, and I'm like. Three days, a thousand miles. What? This is not LCQ. This isn't like a one mile in 10 minutes kind of qualifying thing he's going to do. Does he even know what's going on? So I go running out to the shop. I'm like, Kevin. And he's like, yeah. I'm like, dude, you know this is a three day thousand mile race? Nevada? August? What are you thinking? And he just looks at me, pats me on the shoulder. He goes, guess you better tell everybody then, huh? <laughs> Thanks. And like, blink, blink, blink. And looks at me and I'm like, oh, God. Ugh, I'm in on this, aren't I? So I go in and I start court. I yeah, no, we'd never been racing. Not not what there were two guys in our Jeep club that had been desert racers way back when, kind of thing. But Kevin and I were young, dumb know-it-alls, and we're like, no, 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 we got this kind of thing. While they're like, uh, you need to do this, you need to do that, and we're like, no, 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 we got this. But they did help us. They did, they did give us some. But yeah, no, everything. Uh, we none of us had ever done of it. None of us had ever been in this part of the country. None of us knew what was involved with any of it whatsoever. So I, I divided up our group of friends. I put the. There was one good radio person with each group. I, I'm a geek. I've got my ham license, so we had some radio communication, and we went out and we just went for it. Kevin broke the car in the. Oh, well, actually, no. 
the most mortifying part was getting there and going through tech and contingency with desert racers and having them pointing and laughing at our car that I knew Kevin had worked on for so long and literally pointing and laughing at it. Right. So then we find out there's all these other people that are in our class and the class is called ultra four. And I was like, Kev, did you know anything about this? He's like, well, yeah. I'm like, and they're all, they're all working together. Like they've all like banded together, got pit crew helping each other out. I'm like, how did we not get in on this deal? And he's like, I don't know. So we were like odd man out even within the very first time the phrase ultra four was used. Exactly what you said. This is uh, we're in a, a parking lot at a casino in Las Vegas. Yeah. It is August of 2009. I was riding in the front seat of a pusher motorhome with Wayne Israelson. Yep. Also known on Pirate Azuki Izzy. Wayne has been in the right seat of many a trophy truck today. He's tuned shocks for some of the fastest in the world. And I'm with Wayne and we are driving through that parking lot. Yeah. So in one of the left lanes coming at us is one of the well-known blue Ford Super Duty McMillan chase trucks. And I'm a fan, definitely a fan of the McMillans over the years. In the passenger seat is Andy McMillan. He's young, mm-hmm. right? This is, you know, we're talking, this is a decade ago. And he's sure. leaned forward. He's on the edge of his seat in this truck. His arm is outreached across the dash, across the steering wheel, pointing at the rock crawler, the, the 4400 class, the King of the Hammers car that is on the trailer in front of us. And that car belonged to, to Dave Schneider. And it was being raced by Jeff Knoll. Yep. And, and Dave Cole's IFS car was behind us. And Andy McMillan, I, I still can visualize it. Today. He's pointing and laughing. And I can see oh, him yeah. laughing through the windshield. And then here we are, this past King of the Hammers Thursday. What is running at King of the Hammers? The T1s. Yeah, trophy trucks, the trick trucks, the whatever they're called under whichever yep. race series. A McMillan won that race. And yep. to go from a short 10 years in desert racing where we have those guys are laughing to now Andy McMillan has built and runs an all-wheel drive, four-wheel drive trophy truck based on technology that we were working on proving out in the desert a decade ago. It feels very, very cool to see it having come to that full circle. It's amazing. I I mean, the last decade has been the most amazing and inspiring decade for me from going from being laughed at like that to, I mean, that race, just to finish that story, because I could spend a whole hour on that story. But really, you know, we got laughed at. Kevin broke... I don't remember what he broke, a Heim or something early on in the back end for the, the sway bar. So he had to baby it. And we ended up being... We ended up winning. Yeah, y'all won. Um, won the yeah, we won. So so the biggest, ugliest car that wasn't actually a part of the rest of the crew won. But I met all these people. I mean, some of them I'd kind of met before. I'd met Dave Cole at least once or twice before. Jeff Knoll, I definitely knew. Definitely met Shannon Campbell. There's just a whole lot of people in my whole world. I met what would become my world that weekend. But it was weird going back to my corporate job after that. Uh, everything seemed a little different. I mean, being out there for three days, the way we were, it was, it was kind of life-changing. I mean... Literally, money didn't matter. You couldn't get access to things, so you had to bar. Like you were using the three things that were most valuable at that race were tools, parts. Actually, four things: tools, parts, ice, because ice was impossible to come by, and liquor. And if you didn't have those four things, money did not matter. Like even a little bit, because you couldn't do anything with money out there. But if you had one of those, you could make something happen. And I'll hone in on the parts. It was fuel pumps. Fuel pumps were going like crazy. Yeah, we ended up. <laughs> I sent one of my girls. We had we. I think we had the only girls in big cruise and we had like four women with us that to this day are my ride or die girlfriends love them i sent one of them into tonopah or hawthorne i don't remember what it was to the napa to see if we could get 
a fuel pump and it was closed. The local sheriff saw her and gave her a police escort to the Napa owner's house, who then opened the store to get his fuel pumps. That was my introduction to racing. I'd never done anything like that before in my life. Within two years, I had quit my day job and was full time with King of the Hammers. Yeah. And go in that direction. So Dave Cole. Yeah, Dave Cole. Dave. You try to tackle him out of campfire and then he gave you a job. <laughs> That's the story I was told. Yes. not There was some time in between those two things happening. But... And they say the bigger the tree, the harder it falls. <laughs> that was really good. And he's like six foot six and you're like five foot four. Five two. Yeah, no, oh, five, five two. two. Yeah, no, no. You must have been staying on phone books and you just tackling. I, well, you know, he, he bogarted my Gentleman Jack. There were rules, man. When we were out at the Hammers, there was always a bottle of Gentleman Jack and you passed it. And that's what you did at the campfire at night is you passed the bottle of Jack. Hammers was my get away from the world place for many, many years. It was how I got away from cell phones and how I got away from corporate America was to go out and spend a weekend with the Hammers. There was always the bottle of Gentleman and Jack and there was always my group of friends and that's what we did on a weekend and so Dave Cole kind of came up at, I think I'd met him once on a Save the Hammers thing before this but he, we were out there with him and he's hanging out with us but man every time the bottle got to him it would just get stuck with him and I'm like dude you gonna share that or are you just gonna hang on to that over there and he, you know I was feisty he was feisty so he gets up we're both East Coasters so we <laughs> we don't have any problem kind of uh, being combative with each other if you will and and he stands up and he puts the bottle above his head just like like a schoolyard or like big brother kind of thing and he's all what are you gonna do about it and I just looked at him I thought well the bigger they are the harder they fall put my shoulder down went kind of for like his midsection and he wasn't expecting it at all <laughs> He had to, he had to like brace himself. So fall forward enough that I grabbed the bottle out of his hand and I stepped back and I said, that's what I'm going to do about it. And if you can't pass the bottle, you don't get it back again. And he's like, who is this girl? Where did she come from? So that was really my first, like, uh, I think Dave might've remembered my name after that weekend. Now he won't forget it, right? Probably not. You, uh, you go to work for him. Yeah. And that was, you know, he took a big chance on me. It was crazy. Uh, Kevin was racing King of the Hammers with him. And, and so in the early days, a lot of what was happening was, I mean, we're talking days when like the Lovells would show up, the two brothers, Brad Lovell, who's raced Pro 2 and Pro Far for years. Everybody knows his Amstrad car, but he's also won 4,800 in EMC a lot of times. But Brad Lovell and his brother Roger would show up and they would like literally sleep in the back of their pickup truck. We didn't have money. None of us were fit famous. Um, it was just all about trying to get out there and race your stuff. So these guys, so everybody would come and you'd have a driver, co-driver, and then all their stuff would kind of get left behind. And then there was me. I wasn't actually driving or co-driving, but I'd come along to all these things. So I started sharing on social media, the stuff that was going on. And then it kind of became, Hey, Shannon, do you know what time the driver's meeting is? And Hey, you know, the drivers would reach out to me kind of between the races. Like, do you know anything about what's going on? Assuming that I might have more information than everybody else. So I'd kind of become team mom for a few years in there when Big Ugly, which is what the name of the race team became known as, Kevin Sakalis's race team. We owned it and it became the underdog that we wanted to cheer for. I would travel with Big Ugly, but inadvertently I'd kind of become everybody's mom or, or race support to a certain extent because there was nobody really in the pits a lot of times when we were in places like in the early days like ultra four didn't have four races we would go race lands and hill climb we would go race best in the desert we do other people's races back then and so there'd just be this small group of like a dozen 4400 cars there doing ultra four related things to qualify for king of the hammers the next year Doing family things. I mean, that was where the yeah. family just turned to grow. I mean, it just grew out of that. It really did. You knew who was traveling to where, who was traveling to when, and 
what they were doing and and who they were, who their wives were, who their girlfriends were, who their parents were. Yeah, you brought up the levels. Their parents always say, you know, Brad's mom and dad are amazing people. I've seen them no less than thirty times in in the last few years. I mean, they're it is. It's family at these events. So, and that's what it was. It was all family. And then King of the Hammers happened. It was, things were really rough. Johnson Valley, the Marines was, were declaring that they were going to take over Johnson Valley. We had that death in Johnson Valley that wasn't ultra four King of the Hammers related, but that terrible MDR accident that happened out there. Yeah. That happened August of 2010 at the right, MDR. And that kind of changed everything. It changed everything. I mean, you know, when people look at, I, I still see people posting, like, man, remember when you could touch the cars? And that changed everything. And we were actually, a whole group of us were in, ultra, were in Colorado for a hill climb because there was actually an ultra four series race in Colorado. And we woke up in the bed and breakfast we were staying on and desert racing was on national news. And I thought this is, this is not how we want to make it to national news. And so what happened was, I think that was a really hard year for that could have been, I think, a make or break year for King of the Hammers, to be honest with you. Uh, BLM changed all the rules on everything. I think there was a lot of stress there for Dave and Jeff going into that event. About two weeks after that King of the Hammers, I was back in, you know, my corporate office job. And I think I was even on the phone with Kevin at the time. And I'm like, Dave Cole's calling me. What's that about? I mean, we were friends by this point. I definitely spent plenty of time with him. We weren't like calling each other every day kind of thing. And Kevin goes, maybe you should see what it's about. And I picked up the phone and he said, I'm now the sole owner of King of the Hammers and I need your help. And I'm like, holy crap, that's going to scare people. <laughs> and I mean, it was just change. It was major change, right? And he said, I'm not on social media. I know you are. I, I don't, I, I just need help. I said, okay. And so I kind of helped him announce that transition that he was the sole owner and was doing it kind of on the side for him while I was still trying to do my day job. And about five, six months in on that, it really became one of these things where it was, I, I was having a real tough time keeping it from my day job just because I was getting so many calls and so much stuff happening that I kind of told Dave, you got to find somebody to do this for you because I can't, you know, I can't do this and maintain my career. You're growing at a really quick rate. And he said, well, what if I hired you? And I was like, well, you, <laughs> I don't think you can afford me yet. Can you? I mean, cause it was very small back then. I mean, he was still working. He still had, a, he still had a full-time job and you know, I took a pay cut of more than half. Dave really sacrificed a lot. We just, I just kind of jumped in with both feet. It was sink or swim and and let's pray we can make this actually work for a good uh, three, four years there. And it was me, him. Back then there was this guy, Chris Bolger, who was like our sales guy and, and did the trade show stuff. And it was just the three of us for, for quite a few years, actually putting it on and, and making it grow. And we went from that first year, we added King of the Motos. We added Smittyville Everyman Challenge. We added a Jumbotron. We added an East series and a West series. And we, we just spiraled grew. I mean, it was all I did you know, 18 hours a day for years. Yeah. Yeah. There was a, certainly multiple points along that timeline from between 07 and the OG 13 and, and nine and a 10 and then uh 13 again, I'd say was just the trajectories continued to hit these inflection points where the hammers, you say, Oh my gosh, there's 30,000 people here during hammers week. The race is only on Friday to where now we're racing Wednesday. Now we're racing Thursday. Now we're racing Friday. Now we're racing Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Now we're racing yeah. on Sunday yeah. with motos. Now it's no longer a, Hey, you know, if we get out there on the Friday before when they release the, the course map for next Friday, we're good. Now it's no, you're rolling in 10 days before the race. That's just how it is now. Yeah. And the inflection points of, you know, exactly where it started out as JT Taylor corrected me earlier. It was 12 guys plus Dave and Jeff and a couple camera guys the first year to 
Now there's, you know, 80,000 or 90,000 people that stroll into Johnson Valley. I shared on social media today, just Cody Wagner heading into his place, Laser Town, that he has yeah. there in Johnson Valley. The county or the state or somebody is maintaining Moon Road. They are grading it, adding gravel. We're walking into October right now. You know, we're not that many months away from KOH and prep is already on for uh, the 90,000 people to come in and out of there 6,000 times during that week. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and it was it was crazy because there was kind of two things happening simultaneously back then. One, it was obviously we want to grow this. We want to make Ultra 4 a household name. We, we want King of the Hammers to be the biggest thing there is out there. And that was what I wake up every day with is that thought. But there was a second thought that was driving both Dave. I, I don't want to speak for Dave, but certainly everybody knows how passionate he was about saving the hammers. But both of us, it consumed us. You know, multiple people along the way told us that the only way we were actually going to be able to save the hammers is to make people care about it. We had like this twofold on why we needed King of the Hammers to become so big. Yes, because it paid our bills and and was our, our job, but also because if we didn't make enough people care about it, we were we were up against the Marines. So we really needed it to become something that everybody had a vested interest in. That was something that telling the story of the hammers, telling the story of King of the Hammers just became this narrative that we told as often as we could to get as many people to care about it as possible. In that said, it wasn't a popular stance to have the off-road community had that the outdoor recreationalists had about saving Johnson Valley. It was not a popular stance to have about that because you were against the Marines. And if you were against the Marines, then you were against being a patriot. You're against being American. You're against training our soldiers allowing them to be trained to go fight in Iraq, Afghanistan, in similar terrain is what Johnson Valley owns. And that was that was a hard, really finding the delicate balance in telling that narrative was so important because there's nobody that I know of in the off-road community that is anti the Marines. I mean, we love our troops. We thank them for their service. We believe in what they're doing. And yet there's also this part of us that's like, public lands are public. For somebody like me, and and quite frankly, Dave, we didn't grow up with public lands. To me, it felt like it mattered more to us and we understood what a precious resource it was just a little bit more because we didn't take it for granted because it wasn't something we grew up with. And so it was this magical thing that you got to have that that if it was gone, you don't get it back. And a lot of the ways that people had gone about, you know, trying to stop closures from happening just really weren't working. And so that was actually really cool because it continued to keep Jeff Knoll, who was Dave Cole's first partner in King of the Hammers involved because he cared about saving the hammers too. So Dave and Jeff got to continue to work together. And I worked with that. Jeff uh, kind of spearheaded this coalition that really worked on that. And we, we kind of changed the rules on how we did it. We got lobbyists involved. We got petitions, but petitions on a huge scale on, uh, you know, whitehouse.org to make the president respond to it kind of thing. And, and I was very much involved with that. So while half my job was promoting races, half my job was getting people to care about what King of the Hammers, what the hammers were and what it symbolized to all off-roaders everywhere in the world. And that, was, that wasn't a task I took lightly. I'll say that. Yeah. Yeah, no, Absolutely. At the end of the day, I don't think anyone, you can't say I can say like we won. I don't think anyone won. I think what came yeah. out of it was, you know, a very, very cool sharing of our natural resources. As is the case with any compromise, 
nobody feels that they got what they wanted out of it, but both walked away with more than what the other side wanted them to have. And it wasn't even other sides. The part that makes me probably the most happiest about all of it is the Marines are now our allies, 100 for, well, Hammer King's allies, 100% out there now. They let uh, some of the land even be used for the race. They think it's a really cool thing to get to be a part of. And it ended up on such a positive note, I mean, yes, it, it does it stink that we don't have as much public land as we did? Sure, that always stinks when we lose public land. Am I stoked that it is federally designated OHV land and it's protected for generations? Absolutely. I am, absolutely, yeah. Well, so we can kind of jump forward a little bit and sure. hear uh, what you were doing with Ultra 4. I think everyone kind of knows, I mean, without... Without knowing what you did, everyone knows that you were more or less the glue. <laughs> I, that was a phrase used a lot. Mom was used a lot. <laughs> no, I, you know, Dave's a visionary and getting, you don't get many times in your life. Some people never get to work with a visionary. I mean, he has such clear ideas of what he wants to do sometimes and, and how big he wants to go. He, he does not limit himself on that. And it was amazing to get to work with him on that level. Exhausting at times, but amazing because he's just like, we're going to do this. And it's like, uh, how are we going to get from here to there? And so a lot of what I was, was the person that figured out how to get from here to there. Or sometimes the person going, you're out of your mind. <laughs> Half the time telling me he was out of his mind just made him double down on wanting to do it. <laughs> but no, I was the person that yeah tried to make it all come together as far as you know the social media the websites the public relations the all of that was me you know at the regional races i was usually checking people in and registering them and then turning around and and helping with the live shows and then at king of the hammers they kind of kept me hidden the whole time because i was the keeper of every spreadsheet and every list on the lake bed every king of the hammers so <laughs> if it happened out there it had started with a list that i had <laughs> And there's and there was some stuff said about wh why can't we clone Shannon? Like why can't we have like two or three of her? So you brought your two sisters, and they kind of look like you enough that people would be confused. They'd be like, "Hey, Shannon," and like <laughs> the one looks like me. The other one got away with it. Thank God, she's blonde and and pretty fair. So um, unless she unless somebody heard her speak, and they'd be like, "Oh, she sounds like Shannon." Up, but <laughs> um, but the one that looks like me, <laughs> the first year she came That's out, that's Carrie, she, right? Is that Carrie? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Carrie looks a lot like me growing up. We're only 16 months apart, sort of Irish twins, right? <laughs> the first year she came out there, she's like, hey, I'm going to go get like a soda or something. I'm like, I wouldn't go out there if I were you. And she's like, because like, you're not going to make it to get the soda. And she's like, because like, there's going to be 20 people that stop you between here and there with questions that they need to have answered. And she's like, shut up. It's not going to be that bad. And she comes back to my water and she's just like, Oh my God, that was a madhouse. I'm never. Is it? Yeah. Because people didn't know there was two of you. People no. did not know. And no. she looks so similar enough and talks so similar enough. And that if you said, if she says, I'm not Shannon, I'm Carrie with people, would be like, whatever, Shannon. Whatever. Where is, we're not and she really didn't have answers back then. Eventually, she came to him answers. She's actually a spreadsheet guru. She's amazing with spreadsheets. So is Dave, actually. Dave's really good on a computer. But so she kind of became the keeper of my spreadsheets and keeping me going on that while I was dealing with everything else. But she actually made a jacket she used to wear out there. And it was like in Star Wars lettering. And it said, this is not the welt you're looking for. Um, <laughs> back of it, somebody came walking up behind her. That was kind of her way of being like, you're, you're not getting who you think. But the same thing would happen with Dave. So there's this guy. Sean Bootsma, who 
I actually helped every year with race ops. And he's tall like Dave. Um, they're built kind of similarly. And I definitely remember walking with people going, you ask him, you go ask him. No, no, what is, and, like, and that's not Dave, by the way. <laughs> and they're like, oh, shoot. Dave has a brother and Dave's brother came out and worked. 100%. He had the same thing going on with Chris Paul. If it wasn't yeah. for his jacket that said, a, it did not say Dave. I don't know what Dave, yeah. I know Dave's yeah. brother's screening is Chris. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Phillies fan 55. That's I, I know his pirate screen. <laughs> from 15 years ago. I can't remember his name, but um, that's how terrible yeah. that is. You would get those three of them confused. Now there's okay. there's no confusing them. I mean, it's Dave, Dave, and still Dave, but you just dropped a bomb on us. I want to sneak back to that. Sure. That you said Dave is a spreadsheet guru and is a computer guru. Like he's good. I, I've always, and probably not unlike others, believe since he's not on social media, he just doesn't do computers. That's not the case, huh? No, he's like a, and again, I don't want to bring Dave on, talk to Dave and get his, his history, but he's like a logistics genius and what he can do with a spreadsheet. I didn't know Excel when I started. I had assistants that did Excel for me before I started working for Dave. Then my life became Excel spreadsheets just because it was the only way to keep everything organized. But Dave, no, he's actually, he has a very technical mind, very logistics oriented, and it, it's impressive to see. Just super smart guy. Yeah. I don't want to go too much and too much further with Ultra 4 stuff. I know that's dominated your life for the past eight years, but I want to talk about your future and what you've been doing with social media that you've learned over the past 15 years, the past 20 years. Sure. What is the current, you're doing marketable packages for off-road yeah. teams, social media, like wheelhouse stuff. Let's get into the stuff that really, when Shannon wakes up in the morning, Shannon's like raring to go on. Yeah, well, for me, it's always been about telling stories. It's always been about, you have to start with the story. You have to start with the narrative. And I love, one of the things I've been doing this year in particular, I've gotten to help out some family members, some small businesses, some teams a little bit. The one thing that I can't, I can do, but quite frankly, it's just too pricey for most people. I can't be your social media person who's doing your daily posts for you, but I can be your strategist. Really what I love doing is sitting down and going, okay, this is what we're doing today. This is who we want to target. This is the message we need to get out there and coming up with a, a way to get that message out there. And then it always has to be tweaked a little bit. You have to, you have to figure out who your audience is, how to find your audience. And really social media has become so savvy with that. It's tough. It's changed a lot. How I never spent a dime on paid social media for Ultra 4 and King and the Hammers. Like we did that all organically. And I'm really proud of that to get a quarter million followers basically organically is huge. Yeah. You'd mentioned to me, you know, in that era, in this era, uh, or leading up to this era, that building organic followings was something that was doable, but it's not so much doable today. No. Discuss that and the reasons why that, because for me, that was eye opening. Like I just still is of the belief that you can build organically and it's really not set up that way. No, the game has changed a lot. And and part of it is, is social media is out of real estate. That's the easiest way to explain it. Everybody has a page. Everybody has multiple pages that they're responsible for. I, I personally think I'm the admin on 35 pages. I'm not even kidding. That's obviously more than the average person. But the average person still, if you have one page, you usually kind of have a couple. Or whether it's, you know, Instagram or Facebook or, or Snapchat or whatever it is for you. So people's eyeballs can only look at so many things in a day. And when there's that much out there... You know, you have 
I don't know about you, I've got 3,000 friends on Facebook and I probably follow 300 pages. I couldn't, there's not enough hours in the day to see two to three posts a day from all of that. So Facebook algorithms, Instagram owned by the same company, let's keep that in mind. Their algorithms try to show you the things that they think are most important to you. And so you have to constantly understand what they're doing with their algorithms. And that changes quarterly sometimes. So if it's an entire industry to really understand what's moving the needle and what things are hurting you. So you really need to understand that. But even more than that, so back in the day when you were buying likes, you were literally buying like Asian or Russian farms that were just creating fake accounts that were going like, 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 and that was fake. Like that was nothing more than buying your followers. And you can tell that when you look at a page and it's like, they have, you know, 2 million followers and four people like any image they post. Clearly they don't, they bought those likes. But now when you pay, you are paying to get your message in front of the correct audience that might not otherwise see it. I'm going to throw this out and say this is, are you buying the ability to bend the algorithm? No, you're not. So here's the thing that most people really don't understand. And this is, this is what people are hiring me to help them with. I can put up an ad. I could say something like, you know, I'll use it. I've got a dog. I love dogs. I could literally put a picture up that says I love dogs, right? Now, if I just say boost this post that says I love dogs, because I'm trying, my brother runs a bunch of pet stores. Let's say I put up this post that says I love dogs. And I want to get that to his, I'm trying to promote his pet store. I'm not twisting the algorithm. But if I just say send this to anybody in the United States, well, that's dumb, right? Because I could be sending it to non-dog owners. I could send it to people that are nowhere near my brother's store. What I'm doing in that is I'm going, I want to go in and I want to be able to find dog owners. So I'm going to select an audience who has an interest in animals, pets, pet rescues. So they've already liked pages related to those things. People who have liked PetSmart or something like that. So I can select it and then I can go, oh, well, my brother's store is here on 125 Main Street. And then I can say, I want to select people who have an interest in dogs that live within 10 miles of 125 Main Street. I'm paying to target my message to the right audience is what I'm doing. And when you do that well, you can spend $5 a day and grow insanely because you've actually taken the time to identify your audience and create a message that they want to hear. Whereas if you just go, hey, let me throw $100 at this post and hope that something good happens, you're not bending the algorithm, but you're being smarter about who sees your message. Because quite frankly, if you're a race car driver, why would you pay to put your message message in front of people who live in urban cities that have never off-roaded in their life. Why would you want them to see your message? You see what I'm saying? No, absolutely. Very so. clearly. I mean, I've, I've actually struggled with this on and learned this about this little foria, this whole little podcast deal and who to market it to. Uh, so far it's, uh, you know, hundred percent organic, but when you and I discussed uh, ways to grow this, you know, offline prior to this uh, interview, I, my eyes were open. There's a whole, there's all these other panels behind the Facebook panel that Facebook has for Facebook business. Facebook has for uh, their ad manager Instagram too. And, mm-hmm. and, and for Instagram. So mm-hmm. you, and you mm-hmm. go into ad manager and you fill out your business information or your personal information. And then as you start to build uh, audiences that, you know, and I say build audiences, you're building a profile of what you believe your audience looks like. So then they take that 
profile and apply it to each profile. Correct. Yeah, this guy matches the profile, so we're going to show him this guy's ad. Correct. And then they help you with that. They'll literally, you have some scores in there that you can look at. I mean, it's a lot of data. It's a lot of backend stuff. It's what I've spent my life doing. You look at the backend and they'll tell you, hey... This doesn't have a great relevancy score. And if it doesn't have a relevant, great relevancy score, it means that the audience that the ad that you created and the audience that you selected don't mesh. People aren't interested in what you're doing. And they're actually trying to help you. They're saying, look, if you actually make this look better or you tweak your audience better, you could get a better response on this. But it's, it's a lot of work and it's not something that the average person really wants to do. And you don't also want to, it's an exciting time because the small business owner and the, the race team or whatever doesn't really have the resources to go hire a like a you know a big time marketing company and so i love kind of being that kind of middle ground of being able to say yeah i can take on five or six clients and and really tweak their messaging and do that kind of thing for them so that's that's what i've been doing along with some event management yeah so niche boutique marketing and that said there are teams in ultra four today that do have on staff media guys that are 100 percent dedicated and it should yeah yeah and when you hear that and when you see that it is eye-opening this is big business 4400 ultra four this is big business this moves a lot of dollars this sees a lot of eyes this gets a lot of touches and if you're not being smart about it if you just come in and you're just pushing it out you could be actually counterproductive to your future you're a hamster in a wheel at that point. If you're if you're not being strategic about it, some people through sheer force of they just post nonstop definitely get some followers that way. But that's an exhausting way to go about doing things. There's definitely a work smarter, not harder mentality that can happen. But I think the one thing that most race teams you can have the most talented race car driver. You can have the fastest car. You can have the most wins. But if you aren't actually actively telling your story in a way that is getting to an audience, particularly a new audience all the time, you're going to have a real tough time getting the sponsors behind you. I don't care how winning you are. At the end of the day, what keeps people coming back is they felt the connection to you sometime. And truly, you know, a lot of the guys in Ultra 4 are really great at this. I'm going to use Shannon Campbell as an example. Shannon is just who he is. He's just such a naturally cool guy that he does things like, oh, if there's a kid that walks up to him immediately after a race, he's signing his trophy and he's handing it to that kid. And he's actually not one that really likes to be in the spotlight, but somebody inevitably catches a picture of that. And then that affects people's hearts. And then they remember that. And they remember that Shannon Campbell's the guy that gave that person the shirt off their back. And now they're committed to the driver, not because he's the most winning driver, but because they've connected with him on a personal level. And so many of the drivers I see are so afraid to put themselves out there personally like that. I think with even with Big Ugly, like Kevin had some really gnarly crashes. He crashed at like 96 miles an hour in the mint 400. And it was it was brutal. It was thank God they got out of it alive. Brutal. I was the one having the conversation. And this was pre KOH days, right? Uh, Pre me working for Hammer King days, I should say. And I said, we have to put that video out. And he's like, I don't have video. I don't want people thinking that I was responsible for the accident. I don't want everybody. It's up to everybody's interpretation on how that happened. And sure, 50% of the people thought he was at fault. 50% thought it was an accident. Accidents happen in racing. It's what happened. I said, if we sit on that footage and we have that footage, this is your comeback story because you're going to have to rebuild your car. All of a sudden, you're just going to disappear from social. You need to tell people what's going on. You need to tell them that there was this bad accident. You need to. Sh- we have all the footage of this bad accident. People will learn from it. I go, Kev, you know, you go online and you watch crash after crash trying to do better and not make the same mistakes and fix that. You have the opportunity to do that for somebody else. Why wouldn't you? 
you. It made him so uncomfortable. And I understood why he was so uncomfortable with it. And I said, that's when I know it needs to get out there for people to see. If it makes us uncomfortable, it's the vulnerable thing that makes people connect to us. And what happened from that was huge. People turned around and were like, they were rooting for him. They were rooting for Big Ugly. They wanted to see him come back. And when he did, he became this crowd favorite, the comeback story of kid who built it in his garage. And if we hadn't told that story, there are hundreds, and I would say even thousands, I mean, it's way bigger than that these days. If we hadn't told that story, there would have been all these people that never felt a connection to the race team. And when they feel that connection, and then we go hit up a sponsor and say, hey, we're the guys, oh my God, you're big ugly. Oh my God, you had that crash. Oh my God, what can I do to help you rebuild? You've just changed your narrative. And that's what I see race teams drivers in particular, they're so worried about their cool image being out there that they're not doing a really great job of letting people in, inviting them into their world in such a way that they feel a connection and want to root for them. And that's that's how you make yourself a household name. Oh, yeah. It's the sanitization, right? Always sanitizing your image. And sometimes, to be honest, in an era, in a day where everything is sanitized, it's kind of cool to see stuff that's dirty and brings up uh, emotions or stirs emotions and does give you that tie. Mm -hmm. No, vulnerability helps. You know, even with King of the Hammers, I think another race promoter might have tried to keep it from people that, you know, we could lose King of the Hammers because, well, you don't want your sponsors thinking you could lose it. Dave went the opposite. We went the opposite. We told the world we could potentially lose this, guys. And we got everybody interested in being a part of that story. And everybody feels an ownership in the Hammers because of that. And so if you try to hide your flaws from the social media world, you actually are losing an opportunity to make yourself relatable. It's got to be done in the right way. You don't want to be the person that's spewing your drama 24-7. We know nobody likes that person on social media, right? So you recently did this for me. I had a take on something. It didn't flow the best way. My wife, you know, she's a test listener. She listened to it and was like, delete that. It just doesn't need said. You can get away with your message without saying that. You came back and said, you know what? I don't like that either. But your take on how to solve it was completely different. You said, own it, you know, run at it head on. And man, you know what? That's actually what ended up happening. The feedback I've gotten out of that was, it was very heartfelt and that was rough to, you have the ability, you know, just black it out or white it out. However you want to look at it, uh, redact it and move on or shine every light on it. There's nothing to hide. And that is something I've really enjoyed about working with you that I've gotten to see how you look at things. Just having that sounding board to get that other take has kind of been very cool to me because I, I would have gone the other direction many times on stuff and you've opened my eyes to things. I, I really love the way your mind works. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So that's what I'm doing. I gotten to work with a couple of family members on some of their stuff. I've gotten to work with, you know, a couple of small businesses on what they've got going on. I, I actually got involved with a big music festival and bike rallies and that sort of things. Cause I love the event side of it. I love getting to travel and, and put on events and there's a lot. I didn't realize my job had never existed in the role that it did at Hammer King before I created it. And so there's a lot of skills that I learned there that I didn't realize what I was learning along the way. And so it's been cool to be able to jump in. Like, you know, for a couple of years, I helped out with Nora at the Mexican 1000 and being able to be like, hey, I've got a way we can streamline this. Or, hey, there's an easier way to get that message out to people. Or we've definitely got to get more organized on something 1000 in general. But I, I do enjoy that aspect of helping manage events. But that strategic messaging and really helping people connect with an audience is huge. I think the one thing that new people all think is that all of the big drivers in Ultra 4 have this huge amount of sponsorship. Some of them 
legit do these days, but let's be honest, most of them still have day jobs. Absolutely. Where the sponsorship comes from is because because they've made themselves a presence. And it's not just because they've ended up on a podium. It has not almost nothing to do with who ends up on a podium. I was the keeper of everybody who ended up on a podium. And after a year, I couldn't tell you who came in second and third most of the time. And sometimes I can't even remember who came in first because you move on to the next event. But what you do remember is you do remember that gnarly role or you do remember that time that an example, I'm not trying to use Shannon again, but we had a parade in Indiana and there was a little girl in a wheelchair that couldn't catch the candy on the street. So Shannon gently went up onto the yard and personally handed her candy. And you remember those moments, right? And you remember when somebody gave somebody else their transmission because otherwise they weren't going to get a chance to race. And those are the things that stick with you over time, not the wins and losses. And so if you aren't telling those stories, you struggle. Yeah. Exactly. I can't even tell you what race it was, but it was this past year. Dave and Hammer King did away with the live feed. It crushed us all. Actually had the live feed being done away. It was at Ridgecrest and it'll be at Nationals. But let's say if it had not gone away, I don't know that this podcast would have gone forward. Uh, because I don't know that I would have thought, ah, oh, we're going to get our fill. We're going to get miles on here. The big change that I saw this year that I actually maybe turn and take huge notice and huge heed was some rednecks from Kansas. Lucky Dog Racing yep. Team, yep. Levi Shirley. I say it loosely, close friends, Connor Rednecks. They are hardworking. I would never put them in the technologically savvy category when it comes to social media and that sort. I missed that boat by a mile because Levi came out and instead of there being no live feed, Levi runs a Wi-Fi camera playing off of an iPhone in his car and yep. live streams the entire race from inside his car. Game changer. Here's the first thing I got my heart pumping in a long time being, cause I wasn't at the races. This is the first I, Dean Mooneyham, who people call him father time, whatever, probably the biggest volunteer. Um, he and I had an ongoing bet, not an ongoing, a rivalry on who had been to the most ultra four races before this year. Cause we were both close I, from the beginning of time to, to last year. And so you see a lot, you've been around a lot, but I've always been at the races. This is the first year I was at home. And so, yeah, I, I definitely, you know, missed the life you do. And when Levi did that, I was sitting in my car somewhere. I think I was running an event and I had to stop for lunch and I was like glued to my phone. And I'm like, I had this excitement that I hadn't had in a long time. And that was cool to feel. And I think that one of the good things that came out of this year is drivers can't rely on the organization to do all of the promotion of their own their own race team. They can't. It just, the whole thing doesn't grow. And that was the thing for many years, Ultra Fern King of the Hammers, everybody was working together to promote themselves. You know, I remember, I keep referencing the Campbells, but you know, Tammy, you know, she's like, Shannon, how do I do this on Facebook? Or how do I do that? And, and we all were learning together how to do those things. And so that needs to continue. You just can't assume that the race organization with hundreds and hundreds of drivers, you have to figure out how to get yourself in the front of that. And it's not always whether you make it on the podium. No, you're spot on on every level. You have to find a way to differentiate yourself from the fray. That's that's just it. So, Shannon, before we close this out, I want to ask you about you know some aspirations, the future. I know you have some dreams about Dakar, and I know you have some dreams about maybe another literary project. <laughs> uh, yeah, so... What got me into this was before I was even involved with anything offered related, I had a buddy who borrowed my TiVo to record this crazy thing that would run in the middle of the night. It ended up being Dakar that he was recording, and I didn't know anything about it. This is the same guy who introduced me to dual sports motorcycles, by the way. So he'd turn it on, and I'd be doing other stuff in my house. He'd literally come over to binge watch 
Dakar. And I'm looking at it. I'm like, how do they get from place to place? How do they coordinate? Like, where do they set up at night? Like, and he's like, this is what you're thinking about? You're not thinking about the actual race? Like, you don't care that they're going fast. I'm like, no, I want to be the person who actually makes that happen. And he's like, you're not right. <laughs> and, so, and so, you know, when the whole Vegas Torino the long way came up, I'm like, oh, it's my own mini Dakar. And then I loved it so much. I was like, how do I get to keep doing this? For years, anything, I would ask myself two questions. And I decided for about a, a seven year period of time, I would, if the answer was yes to these two things, I would jump in with both feet, which is how I ended up taking a pay cut by half and, <laughs> and joining the circus with, with Hammer King was I would ask myself, will I get to race more? And will it get me to Dakar? If the answer to those two things was yes, I would find a way to do it. And I did that for years and it led me on this crazy path that I've been on. Um, but then Dakar ended up being like two weeks before King of the Hammers. <laughs> so I kind of had to put that on hold for a little bit. I still have a goal. I would love to go to Dakar. I do not want to go just to, I've never been a spectator at any off-road event. I'm not going to start now. Some of the things that Chris co-drives with a lot of different teams, I manage communication and comms and, and do all of that for fun on the side. Yeah, I want a team to need me to go with them to Dakar to help them make it happen and to be that glue that they need to make it happen one day. Yeah, that's still a goal. And any other cool adventures like that, that somebody needs, you know, that rock who's going to make it happen for them that isn't necessarily in the car. I'm your girl for that one for sure. On the other side of it, uh, the literary side, I've been on my own journey with just writing. I write these ridiculously long things and I do it specifically on Facebook so it disappears after a couple of days. That's learning to tell my own story and be more vulnerable, right? Because I tell everybody else to do it, I got to do it too. At some point, I see a book, I see a couple of books, I have some ideas, I don't really want to give away too much on that. And you know, everybody says, oh, I'm going to write a book or oh, I'm going to do a movie. So I'm not one to really say it unless I'm actually going to do it. So we'll see what happens with that. Yeah, we'll see. Shannon. Yeah. So uh, how do you feel about uh, where we're at today? Uh, yeah, we've talked about a lot of topics today. I've enjoyed it. Hopefully your listeners enjoy it. And yeah, no, I've had a great time talking with you. So coming back to you, uh, you are an open door, open door policy with Shannon. Uh, you can hit her up on the, hey, Shannon, quick question. Reach out to her if you are looking for some social media help. I'm sure that her business would very much appreciate you giving her business. Let's support those that support us. Well, Shannon, thank you for coming on. I'm going to issue an apology to your partner in crime, Chris Porter. We didn't discuss him at all. He has been an oh. integral part of your life for yeah. about nine years. Yeah. Uh, I know you guys are big, you know, offshore fishing. You have a boat, you're off-roaders. I know Chris is a mechanic. He can change a motor. He's, he's amazing. He's a keeper. Amazing. And so tell Chris when he listens to this, accept my apology that we glossed over this. And then he can be mad at you. That's you. I, I'm, I'm apologizing for him. No, he's amazing. I couldn't do what I do, putting myself out there in front of people all the time without him. Even more than that, in his own right, he's got his own racing background and, and we do lots of adventures together. So that's going to continue for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I thank him for letting you come on here and, <laughs> and giving you the time to keep the dogs away so they're not barking <laughs> so we're, we're able to knock this out and just uh man just had what a dynamic dialogue i think it's people are gonna listen to the talent tank and they're looking for race dialogue and they're looking for you know how races went and here we are we're talking about marketing and social media and writing and where the world is today on that and then how that parlays into our race world but shannon Thanks for accepting my invite on. Thank you for all the advice you've given me on this uh, little adventure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
All right, guys, we're going to cut out here, but I hope you enjoyed this episode. You made it. Another episode consumed. If you like the listen, please go give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and consider writing a quick review either there or over on the Facebook page. Thank you for tuning in to this wild dive into the talent tank. Wyatt, out. Thank you for listening and taking a dive into the talent tank. Please like and subscribe on Instagram at the talent tank or our website, thetalenttank.com.